Lucy Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. You are going to have your mind blown in today's episode. I chat with the incredible Brian Ungard. He is the Chief Purpose Officer for the Decurian Corporation. They are a 70-year-old company with businesses in movie theaters and commercial real estate and senior assisted living. And he has written an incredible book, The Practice of Self-Management. And it's based on over 15 years of work that they've done at Decurian to really help them become a deliberately developmental organization. And man, everywhere this conversation went, Brian is on this personal mission to wake us up from what he calls the conscious flatlands. And he talks about how his work at Decurian really got started and what he outlines in his book to really help us thrive and flourish by helping us wake up from this autopilotness and from just constantly responding to our habits and that we have no pause between stimulus and response. And so really tools that we can use to be first and foremost more present in our lives, to reduce that reactivity or autopilotness, and then ultimately dissolve barriers between us and others. And our conversation then shifts to the incredible interconnectedness of developing ourselves and then the development of organizations. And that learning is not the same as development and neither actually necessarily leads to us thriving. And then we shift into looking at this broader context of how it all fits with paradigms and that whether we realize it or not, that our engagement with paradigms are shaping the outcomes of our lives. And just so many synapses were going off. And I think that you're just going to, again, realize how complex and messy all of this is, but how necessary this work is. And I know you're going to walk away with some nuggets, with some new thinking, perhaps even being a little bit uncomfortable and enjoy. Well, welcome, Brian. It is so nice to be talking with you, and I am super excited about our conversation today. I think there's going to be lots of good nuggets. It's great to be here. So uh, we met through Conscious Capitalism, which seems to be the theme of a lot of my my guests and love the work. And I know you've been in and out of that movement. And we also happen to be uh, both founding authors of the Conscious Capitalism Press. And so your book, The Practice of Self-Management, I, there's so many things I love about it. I know you said it's kind of a one-on-one and I think there's so much alignment with the work that we do with organizations trying to help them be conscious. So for the benefit of, of the viewers, I just want to say a couple of things that I pointed out because there's lots of highlights, as you can see in my book, the reader, the listeners can't, but, um, but you talk about some really important things that are kind of the cornerstone of what we teach as well, that it's time-tested approaches you've done for 15 years at Decurian. And it's about being present, which Lord knows so many of us could do, uh, reducing our reactivity, which Lord knows so many of us could do, and then dissolving barriers between ourselves and others. And one of the things that I was thinking about, and I was thinking about this over the course of, we just had Thanksgiving and over the course of just what's been going on in our world in 2020. And you write that when there's no gap between a stimulus and a response, you often find yourself acting in ways you regret, whether immediately or later after you've calmed down and thought about your behavior. And I was just thinking about that, of how many families and friendships have been fractured based on political stuff and just what's been going on and how many people are just really reactive about how people are or are not responding to COVID. And um, I just think that's, that's, that's really, really telling. So can you I think start our conversation today, just speaking a little bit more about your practice of self-management and kind of how the book came to be and the lessons you've learned from doing this work at the Decurian Corporation. 
Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, the Decurion Corporation is a, is a corporation that went through a amazing, perhaps even unlikely transformation 20-ish years ago, uh, where they took a 50-year-old company, and uh, that was uh, very traditional, very hierarchical, very, it's a family-owned uh, company. Uh, and and it, it very, tra- uh, very uh, loyal to the family. And in a relatively short period of time, a few years maybe, transformed it to the beginnings of a what we would now call a conscious company or a, a company that's uh, led by purpose and values and uh, this, this work on consciousness. And uh, early, uh, b- before I joined the company, uh, uh, Chris Foreman, the, uh, the owner of the company, and a couple of other people uh, designed and started leading this course that was called the practice of self-management. And we've been doing it ever since. So it's been more than 15 years now. Uh, we used to do it a couple of times a year, you know, uh, 25, 30 people at a time. So we've probably done hundreds of, of people at this, uh, at this point. And it's really interesting, this notion about, uh, working on practicing to become present, to become less reactive, to become uh, more connected to the, the people around us. It's amazing how, uh, how useful that is and, and ultimately how hard it is. Uh, and, and I think what I've learned, you know, just speaking for myself, much less uh, as a participant in that course, uh, including and eventually teaching it, was that our default state as humans is to be reactive. For sure. Uh, uh, and reactive is a big word. And another way of saying it, our default state is to kind of habitually think what we normally think, to feel what we normally feel, and to do what we, what we normally do. And I like to be provocative, but I don't think I'm wrong, is that that's like 99.9% of our waking hours is to just be in the groove of, of what we've, of what we've learned to do. Uh, and to well, break you know, out I read, I read a stat from, I don't remember which neuroscientist it was, but this was years and years ago. So it's probably even more by now with all of our technology, but this was gosh, 10 plus years ago said that we spend 90 plus percent of our waking hours on autopilot. So you're, you're it's, probably not far off. It's some big percentage. Right. And uh, uh, I, I know I was quite, uh, devoted to the idea that no, not me. I've, I've, uh, uh, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not captivated by that. So an, another way, another very provocative way of saying that is, you know, there's a debate in philosophical circles about whether we have free will. Hmm. And I'm pretty firmly in the camp that us humans have the potential to have free will, but our default state is that we don't. Our default state is that we're like programmed machines this little input comes in and then without any gap between that stimulus and the response, an automatic thing comes out. And that automatic thing doesn't always have to be some uh, horrible, uh, you know, uh, negative thing. Uh, I have an automatic answer when somebody says something nice to me. I have an automatic answer when I see somebody in the hall. I have an automatic answer when you ask me a particular question. And the work of interrupting that automaticity, that mechanicalness, and instead truly being present is, is really uh, the, the, the work of deconstructing that programming that has been with us from the earliest waking moments of our lives. Uh, and I think it's the root of 
personal development. I think it's the work of uh, work that we do as leaders, work that what well, work that we do as humans. You know, of uh, of just people and parents and partners and, and how are we in the world? But then, if we happen to have a role inside an organization. I think the stakes go up because uh, so much is depending on us in those situations. Oh, absolutely. And what, what I, I'm a big like dot connector and there's some people who say things in a different way. And as you describe that, what it reminds me of, cause I know you refer to Bob Keegan's work a lot in your, and I love him. I, I love him and Lisa and I'm such a huge fan of their work. And I say that their work is a gift to the world. And I know that there's a lot of synchronicity between their work and Bob Anderson and Bill Adams with mastering leadership and, and all of those things. And they, they refer to it as the inner game and the outer game of leadership. So the inner game are are all the things that you're referring to. And the outer game are the skills, the competencies, the behaviors yet our inner game runs our outer game. And so that's the language that we end up using when we're working with groups is if you don't tend to that inner game, your outer game's not going to get stronger. And, but it's hard and it's messy and it's uncomfortable because like you said, you're trying to reprogram or unprogram years like innate in us. And that's a, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work and insults sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's a lot of uncomfortable work. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, we end up using contemplative or meditative practices in, in our course, in the book. And I always make the point at the beginning saying, this is not a meditation uh, class. Uh, we will end up using some meditations, but, but they're just tools in order to investigate what's going on inside. Uh, what I found really interesting is 15 years ago when we started this, um, how much the world's changed. We're in California. Maybe maybe California's a little bit different than Michigan, where I spent 20 years. But uh, 15 years ago, the vast majority, 90 plus percent of the people that were coming into the course had never even heard of meditation, much less done anything with it. And uh, so we were kind of gingerly introducing it into the workplace and maybe even a little bit apologetically going, I know this is a little bit weird to do here, but... Uh, and that has really shifted over the years. It's, it's uh, we're not apologetic at all, right? It's uh, mindfulness practices are some of the best peer-reviewed, uh, studied practices in in the world. They're they're they have better research against them than a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that are out of there for their beneficial uh, results. But an interesting twist has happened in that in the courses now, a lot of people have meditated. But the type of meditation that they're doing is not the type, is not the way we use meditation in the course. They're often using meditation to feel better. They're, they're often using meditation to reconnect to some energy source or to some inner, inner quality to de-stress and to regroup and re-energize so they can go kind of back into the fray again. And uh, that's not what, what we're doing. And, and uh, that has its place, but not in the uh, self-inquiry type of work. In the self-inquiry type of work, we're using meditation to become more aware of what's going on. And as you were saying, when you start to become more aware of what's going on inside, at the beginning, it's somewhat horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> at, at, at the beginning, you can end up feeling worse after, after that meditation. You can spend 10 minutes finding out exactly how noisy your head is how many competing voices there are, how many 
contradictions there are, how many, how many urges are pulling you one direction and then another direction and then another direction. And people often, you know, leave the first 10 minutes going, that was terrible. Why would I want to do that again? And of course, the answer is why you would want to do that again is to start to familiarize yourself with that inner landscape that is driving the outer world actions. Yeah, I think that's why Brene Brown calls it embrace the suck. (laughs) It's like, you know, hey, (laughs) it's a path to growth, right? (laughs) Yeah. Somebody, somebody well-known, I forget who said that uh, as you progress along this developmental path, uh, it's not that you're going to hurt less. You might actually hurt more, but it's going to matter less. Yeah. Uh, hurt more, matter less uh, is, is kind of a mantra of, of a lot of this work. Well, I, I love that because I think that, you know, my experience has been that as people, you know, pay more attention and wake up that their insides and tend to that inner game, or I think, yeah, you called it like waking up indiv- individually or internally, there can be a lot of grief. There can be a lot of shame. There can be, there can be a whole host of emotions of, you know, I can't believe I've been doing this or I wasn't aware or missed opportunities. And so I think it's, it's the, it's the waking up and maybe the discomfort of how do I do something differently? But I think it's also helping people, reconcile and reckon with the emotions that, that can come up when I realize, oh my gosh, I've been a jerk or I've been really unkind to myself, or I've been really judgmental, or I've been completely MIA in my life and couldn't tell you what's going on with my kids or, you know, the list goes on and on. And I think that that can be unsettling because people don't want to have to deal with the emotions um, that, that surface with that stuff too. The, the brutal reality is that those emotions are running the show, whether you're aware of it or not. Absolutely. So, so it starts presenting you with a choice, right? All of that grief and undealt with conflict and angst or you know, whatever the, the long list is, we all have a long list, is running the show mm-hmm. and is showing up in your outer world. Do you want that to be unconsciously running the show without you being aware of it? Or do you want to start to know what's running the show? And so it's uh, by taking on that work, you're starting to become accountable. You're starting to be a player in it rather than a, uh, Fred Kaufman uses strong language, right? Do you want to be a player or a victim? Yeah. And uh, that the victim word tends to, tends to trigger folks. But if, if, if you're not dealing with those emotions consciously, then you're allowing yourself to be run by them unconsciously. Yeah. It's like, do you want to be in the driver's seat or do you want somebody who doesn't have a license who's crazy in the driver's seat where you may not get there safely? (laughs) Uh, So one of the things that I was really struck by, and I remember when, when I first became aware of you, you know, the first thing that I was aware of was the Decurian Corporation, because I do have a connection with Bob and Lisa, and I have followed their work with deliberately developmental organizations or DDO work. And even before they published their book, as they, you were, or Decurian, I should say, was one of the companies. Um, and so I'm really curious if you can speak to, and I know this is a starting point, we're going to get to, it's not quite there yet, but how this work of helping people kind of wake up and tend to that inner game and, and move off of reactivity and the list goes on and on, how that has actually helped Decurian from just, like you said, it used to be very hierarchical, family-oriented, like kind of what's the shift that you've seen and then where do you see it still needs to go? Well, actually, would it be okay if I back up a, a, yeah. a little bit? And, and actually, I could give a shout out. I just found out a couple of days ago that Bob Keegan just published a new book. It's a children's book. 
Oh, lovely. Uh, which was a wonderful holiday surprise. So if anybody is a Bob Keegan fan, go, go check him out on, uh, on his new book. I, uh, I think it's my antelope likes cantaloupe or something like that. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I have to put it in the show notes. I will put it in the show notes. That's awesome. Uh, Bob, Bob and Bob and Lisa discovered us fairly late in the game of us becoming a developmental organization. And, uh, and I think in order to have the right context, you got to back up 15 years. Okay. Uh, we didn't set out to be a, uh, we didn't start with people as the primary focus of development. We started out trying to figure out how to develop, how to develop an entire organization. So many of the questions are the same, but the, uh, you're asking them about the organization rather than asking them about people. So in what, what is the purpose of an organization? In what ways does a organization live into that purpose, not only in the world, but internally with how it operates? And just like you would ask about a person, how is an organization being reactive? How does an organization learn about its environment? Where in the organization does an organization process, you know, what it's, what it's uh, sensing in an organization? How does an organization make meaning? And interestingly, if you want to do that thought experiment for an organization, you can take all of the people out of it, right? Which is a fascinating thing to do for your organization. Think of the organization without any people in it whatsoever and start asking these questions. What's the purpose of an organization that isn't just about the people in it? How does a organization make meaning? You know, if I were to install cameras around the organization, where would I see the meaning-making process? Or would I see, and of course we would in every organization, where would I see the organization being reactive and just doing what it normally does? Where do I see the organization responding to stimuli without any gap between stimuli and, 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 and reaction? And the answer, like, like I said, for every organization is all over the place for the reactive part of it. And I would probably struggle to find the places where an organization makes meaning. So we started at the beginning uh, restructuring, re-architecting the entire company to start to answer these questions and inserting development everywhere because an organization needs to develop the capacity to uh, be sensitive and uh, be aware of its customers, of its uh, the communities that it does business in, of uh, what its role is, what its, uh, what its purpose is. And then to um, redo the processes throughout the organization that allows it to work on things like that. Uh, so uh, maybe we'll get into it later, but uh, we redefine the job of managers we changed the company to operate communally rather than just hierarchically. Uh, we used everything that the organization does to become material for development, communal development, and then eventually individual development. And it's only when we started working on all that that we then came back to the people. If then you're done with that thought experiment, you start putting people back in the organization. And you start saying, okay, if this is what the company is working on, if the company has to figure out how to do this, 
then what's the role of the individuals within the company to, uh, to steward that process, to start to help that entire process of the organization doing it. Uh, and that's when we started uh, finally introducing individual development processes and PSM practice of self-management was a kind of an intro to that was the, was the beginning step for everybody to go through PSM uh, to start to become aware of themselves so that they can engage in that larger communal process. I, there's so much about that. I love, but one of the things that I'm really struck by and I, and I think this happens a lot is you try organizations will develop their leaders or their people, but the structure and the processes and they don't have clarity of purpose and all of those other pieces are not there and they wonder why it only gets so far. And I think there is a, there's a saying in the coaching world that is you cannot take a changed person and put them back in an unchanged environment and think that you're going to have different results. It's almost like the Einstein insanity quote. And so I love that you were looking at, we have to look at this foundation first before we're going to look at the individual development, because they go, we always say they're inextricably interconnected. And, and I love that Dakirian saw that and, and at least tended to that. If if I were going to say that even stronger, because I I think this is a real thing in the world right now is uh, so much time and energy goes into developing conscious leaders. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I don't see uh, except for a few rare exceptions is that developing conscious leaders doesn't get you a conscious organization because I I see those leaders completely co-opted by the existing organization when they go back into it. So uh, I think you have to work directly on building conscious organizations. Uh, We ended up calling it a developmental organization. Uh, At some level, working on development is working on consciousness. And if, if you don't work on the organization itself, then uh, the existing the existing habit of the organization is just going to overwhelm any of the leaders, much less anybody else that comes back into it. Yeah, uh, and that's my complaint. With there's so much attention on people, but uh, people in the organization. But what I I think I've seen over and over and over again is the the people that I know that are alive and thriving and flourishing are almost always devoted to something that's much bigger than themselves. And so where does that come into the picture in our organizational life? And, and, and I think it has to start from the outside in. So, so I start asking the question about what's this organization about and what's the organization doing that's much bigger than itself and when you start to get clear about the organizational role in the bigger world, then that can start to provide the context for why people would want to play an active role in that. And uh, when they start playing an active role in that, they're going to be invited for into their own self-developmental process. And, and it, it has meaning and purpose at that point when it's in that larger context, as opposed to just develop, you know, we, we, we want you to be whole, so develop. There's not enough context. Yeah. Well, and I, I know that when we were talking in, in preparation for this, you were talking about that, that you think in a lot of ways that we're, we're kind of stuck, right? And that there's, there's um, we're not recognizing levels of development and consciousness. Can you speak a little bit more about that? This is something that I 
kind of learned in retrospect or, or learned along the way. And you know, it's become a mission of mine. It's, it's, I, I've started to realize that all of us, myself included, most of the time are, are stuck in a consciousness flatland that ends up kind of, I use the word co-opting again, kind of co-ops all the good ideas that we have and the mission that we want to be on and, and, and the purpose that we, we want to uh, have in, in our lives. So the purpose of Decurion is to provide places for people to flourish, uh, which, you know, the first time I heard that, I was like, oof, yeah, sign me up for that. And uh, who doesn't want that? It sounds amazing. (laughs) It sounds amazing. And, uh, and I didn't realize it till uh, just recently, but I think I had the notion that uh, right from the beginning, the whole reason I came to Decurion was this notion of a developmental uh, organization, right? I had, I did, I had found Ken Welber and Fred Kaufman and Joseph Jaworski and, Keegan and, and, and all these guys, and they were all pointing to this notion of human development, which for me was a revelatory insight into the world that humans develop through their entire life and that there are states and stages of that development that are continually ascending. And uh, there's, 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 you can get better wherever you are, but the, the real interesting uh, juice for me was that there's always a next stage. And that next stage is a completely different way of seeing the world, a completely different way of understanding the world. And we don't know when, where those stages end. They, they, they seem to go off into infinity. But there was this notion of spiral dynamics. There's, there's many different models. Keegan has his model. Uh, and the, the integral folks use the, the model of the spiral dynamics. That, uh, and in that model, there was this kind of breakthrough moment where, where before that moment, uh, their people were kind of in their tribes or in their camps, and, and my camp was right and your camp was wrong. Mm. And then there was this breakthrough moment where people started to realize or had the potential to realize that all the tribes have a role to play. All the tribes have a distinct way of seeing the world that's not right or wrong. It, it just is, and it kind of fits into the overall uh, complexity of, of the universe. So I'm like, yeah, sign me up for that. And, um, and then 15 years went by and along the way, Bob and Lisa had discovered us and Bob had coined the term deliberately developmental organization, which I thought was a, a great, uh, title. And, uh, he'd written first HBR article about us and then the book about us and everyone culture uh, kind of introduced us to the world. And then a few more years went by and, uh, I had taken a new role called the chief purpose officer. I used to be the chief operating officer of the parent company before that. And chief purpose officer seemed like a more honest way of describing what I was doing. And not long after I took that title, uh, I was invited back for another DDO workshop in Boston with Bob and Andy Fleming and company. And at this point, there were more organizations that were interested in becoming DDOs. Uh, so us old original companies uh, were just kind of there to kind of give an update, you know, since, since we'd been introduced years before. My update was, was uh, darn near one of the last things in the program. And, and I'd been asking myself, 
okay, what, what new do I say about the company? And where my mind went was to our purpose about flourishing and a really honest inquiry about how that was going at the Curium. Huh. And uh, what I ended up sharing was that uh, I didn't think we were doing very well. Was everybody in Decurion uh, learning something? I'm like, absolutely. Every single person in Decurion is learning. Uh, I think learning is different than development, is, is categorically different than, than development, right? So mm-hmm. is everybody at Decurion developing? I thought a, a lot of people maybe were, were developing. I thought I was developing, even though that, I'd say that's radically different than, than learning. But was everybody at Decurion flourishing? And if I was really honest with myself, I wasn't even sure I was flourishing, much less huh. everybody at Decurion. So what's up with that? You know, what, why, could so, why could everybody be learning, a lot of people be developing, but precious few be flourishing? And that got to be a consuming question for me. And I think what I ended up learning was that we had ignored something called paradigms. And I didn't know anything about paradigms. <laughs> and it, it, it's not the same as developmental levels and states and stages and all those things. And I went and became a student of paradigms. And what I learned was that flourish, the, the whole notion of flourishing is a question about how life works. And I didn't know anything about how life works. I knew a lot about how development worked, but it turns out that what we had accidentally done is mix up a lot of paradigms. And those paradigms weren't life-based paradigms. And those, the way we were doing development was accidentally, but rather directly undermining flourishing. Hmm. And uh, so that, that was a huge wake-up call for me and, is, and is, is now serving as kind of the next, maybe it'll be the, 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 what I spend the rest of my life doing, is, is attempting to introduce this notion of paradigms and wake people up to how important it is our emotions and internal dialogue are running our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Our engagement with paradigms, whether we are aware of it or not, are shaping the outcomes of our lives and, and, and how we see the lives. And I think if we were to wake up to them, uh, be able to become more discerning about how paradigms are shaking, shaping our lives and our organizations, it's, uh, it's going to be a huge step forward in, in being able to flourish. And this notion of flourishing and life is something that's up for us as a species right now, globally, right? I mean, yeah. it may be a little bit more on, are we going to survive depending where you are in that spectrum? But I'd like to focus more on how is it that we're going to thrive on the planet? And that's a life question. You know, I, I love that you're looking at paradigms because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in both of our books, we spend a huge chunk in the beginning talking about paradigms and, and, and going into it because we think it's so important. And our, our first book, we talk about what we call kind of the old paradigm and new paradigm, but really the worldview that is very reductionist and like machine and just how that guides so many things that we do that we don't realize, right? Like, like you said, if we're not waking up to those paradigms that kind of break off from these, you know, ancient worldviews and kind of what does a new view look like as we have new sciences and new awakenings and new understandings yep. of the world and those types yep. of things. And um, 
We even call, we have a core training program called our Thriving Workplace Culture Certificate. It's long, but TWCC, but um, it's an 11 week program of kind of introducing people to kind of how do you help organizations shift and, and really, you know, push past the old paradigm and try to help usher in new paradigms. And what does that look like? So we actually call them our, our community of paradigm pioneers. So I'm just smiling as you say this, because again, when you look at the, the inextricable interconnectedness of individual and organizational ability to thrive and well-being and effectiveness, you're right. There's, there's development paradigms are, are a part of it. And if we're not looking at the, the, the individual in the construct of the bigger picture, and then everything that's kind of in between, we're not going to, we're not going to flourish. We're not going to thrive. And, and I think that our brains like to compartmentalize and we like to try to make things simple and easy, but human beings and the world are anything but right. And, and that's one way of thinking about a paradigm, right? It, it, it is, uh, makes explicit our image of, of a human being. What what is a human being, and what is the relationship of the human being to our world, to the universe? Uh, how does all of that work? So the the more formal definition of a paradigm is it's the intersection of a cosmology, a, an epistemology, and an ontology. A cosmology, how we literally believe the world works, an epistemology, how we think we know what we know, how 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 do we learn, how do we become aware of knowledge and an ontology about the, the beingness of, of our relationship to all of that, our role. I, I, I've, I've learned almost everything I know about paradigms from uh, Carol Sanford. Highly recommend her book, No More Feedback, in that it's, it's a really useful shock to the system about, about this. She's got four paradigms that I think are really, really useful to, to help uncover kind of our unconscious relationship to, to those cosmology, epistemology, ontology. Would it make sense to go through those? Yeah, please. Yeah, let's Uh, do it. So the, the lowest level, lowest, it's kind of like developmental levels, right? These aren't, these aren't right or wrong. They just are. But, but I, I do believe that as, as you move to more and more complexity, more and more wholeness in these uh, paradigms, you uh, you end up with a more accurate representation of the world, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, an old example is the Copernicus uh, paradigm shift of of when we of when men went from thinking that the Earth was the center of the universe to Copernicus helping us uh, realize that the sun was back then he thought the center of the universe. Turns out our sun's just one rather average sun in, you know, in a billion suns in one galaxy of which there are billions of galaxies. But that was, a, that was a paradigm shift. And the new paradigm more accurately represented how the universe works. So it wasn't that we sometimes said, oh, you know, today I think we'll think about the earth being at the center because that's more useful. Uh, it's like, you know, once, once you're in the new paradigm, you end up abandoning the old paradigms. It's not a transcend and include like, uh, like, the par- like the developmental levels are. So the, the first paradigm from Carol's uh, work is something she calls extracting value. And man, did this resonate with me with a lot of the organizations that I've been in. Extracting value is about getting the most out of, out of the deal, out of a transaction, about, out of the other person, even when it's in a very benevolent uh, sort of way. So in... In an extracting value uh, paradigm, 
there's me, there's you, there's, there's me, and there's everybody else. And the way to win is to make the best deal, is to get, kind of get the most out of the situation, right? The coach gets the most out of his, his players. The, uh, the business person gets the most out of the deal. The strongest survive. It's a very Darwinian sort of... Uh, survival you know, of the fittest type of thing. Survival of the fittest, you know, sort of things. So I, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of companies that, yep. that operate with this. Kind oh, of us yeah. And them, very transactional, very uh, skill-oriented, competency-oriented, uh, survival-oriented at, at yep. the end of the day, right? And, and that's, got a, that's got a feel to it. So the cosmology is that we're all separate and we're all struggling to survive, and you do that through power and competition, uh, the epistemology is really, it's about skills. It's acquiring skills. You know, the person that can uh, do the job the best, run the fastest, uh, outsmart the other person is is uh, is the person that's, that survives, much less, uh, quote unquote, thrives. Um, the, the next paradigm is one uh, called improving performance. Uh, Carol actually calls it a resting disorder. It's, it's uh, the, this whole notion that this, the universe is this kind of wonderful, amazing mechanism, but it's always running down. It's always it's, entropy kind of rules, rules, the, uh, uh, rules the show. And our job is to clean everything up and get everything to run perfect, right? You can... Mm-hmm all the metaphors that we run into, we got to, all the trains got to run on time. You got to get the sand out of the gears. You, everything should run like a Swiss watch, uh, you know, perfection over and over again. So find the problem, solve it, move on to the next problem, solve it, move on to the next problem, solve it. It's all about improving performance. You know, the person that can, that can uh, do the best at the performance is, will, will ultimately succeed on this. So this huge amount of progress in the 20th century, or to this day, uh, around this paradigm, it's the Toyota production system, continuous improvement, you know, Lean Six Sigma, uh, coaching for that matter. Yeah, it can uh, be, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Western medical system, uh, find the problem, fix it, find the problem, fix it. And uh, amazing progress, but the underlying cosmology, the underlying assumption here is that the world, everything is a machine that can be improved. And the problem with that is that humans aren't machines, right? But we've- That's what asked, we call the old paradigm in our old book, right? It's that worldview of the world is a machine and it's a clock, right? And it's reduce it down yep. and fix it. And yep, yep, exactly. So we've imported a lot of things into human development processes like feedback which came from cybernetics, you know, originally, that says, uh, you're meant to fit in this little box over here, but I notice you've got a couple of rough edges. So let me give you some feedback about those edges so that you can fit in the box. Uh, but ultimately, it, it ends up undermining the flourishing of humans because there is no flourishing in here. There's only performance improvement. Yep. So the next paradigm after that is, is one, uh, uh, Carol calls it doing good. Uh, but if you, if you really wanted to make people uncomfortable, you could also say this is really the human potential movement, right? Mm. People, people got tired of uh, being treated as machines. 
started to revolt against all of that and said, what about meaning? What about purpose? What about me? Uh, can't I bring my whole self to work? And more and more of that started doing, what about being fair? What about, you know, what about uh, uh, equity and inclusion and diversity and, and all those things? So the, the notion of kind of a moral imperative of we should do good at work, we should do good for each other, started to come, uh, I think, back into the picture in, in this doing good paradigm. Uh, which you know, was kind of a welcome relief, right? An oasis in the desert of all of this performance improvement over years and years. The trouble with it uh, becomes, uh, there's nothing wrong with doing good, but who's good? Who, who gets to define what's good, right? I've, uh, e even if you read the DDO book, uh, there's an organization in there that uh, decided that everybody, every employee should uh, pick a charity. Every employee should spend more time with their family because that's what the CEO of the company thought was good. And uh, they apparently don't know my family. But uh, <laughs> it's a you know, you know, joke, but who gets to define what's good? And if you actually spend some time researching that, that turns out to be a millennial old question about yep. good and what is good and who gets to arbitrate that. So what, what, what really, really woke me up was when I was introduced to the notion of a paradigm that was based on life, a paradigm that was based on, on living systems, systems that are actually alive. So start to tip into a world where uh, not just me, not just the natural world, but when you can start to imagine everything being alive, including organizations, and to do that, you had to start to learn about how life works. And, and there's a, it turns out there's a, there's a huge body of knowledge around this. Carol's, Carol Sanford's got her system, but she's not the only one doing this. Uh, you can start to organize work around principles of life. So uh, there were two or three principles for me that completely rocked my world. The first was that all life is unique. Every single living entity is unique, right? No matter how many identical twins you, you can have, you know, when you get to know each one, it turns out everyone is, is unique. Yep. And if you really think about that, uh, which I've tried to do, it challenges almost everything we know about development, including feedback, right? If, if each life is unique, then uh, what right do we have to have typologies, to have categories, to have job descriptions, uh, to have uh, all of these things that put people um, almost literally, but certainly metaphorically in boxes, in categories. And, you know, I'm an Enneagram type five. I'm a INTP. I am a this. I am a that. I'm a, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually a one of a kind on, on, the, on the planet that, that has a particular role to play if I have the courage to step into it. And same for organizations. Every organization is unique. And, and the role of every organization is to discover that uniqueness and develop the capability for expressing that uniqueness in more and more complete and whole ways. Yeah. So the second principle was uh, holes, is that uh, 
to think of something as a whole is not just to add up the parts. You, you, you cannot discover the whole in the parts. And you have to be in an entirely different inquiry. So this, this notion of people saying to bring their whole self to work is not a trivial thing. It is, right. That means not only to discover your uniqueness, but to, to discover uh, kind of the boundary or, or what makes you whole. Carol has this funny thing of saying uh, how you can tell something is alive. The, the uh, alive test is to see if you can take it apart and put it back together again and still have it be alive. <laughs> so in theory, I could take my computer apart, put it back together again. In theory, it would still be a computer, right? But I can't take my cat apart, put it back together again and still have it be a cat. And not only that, but no matter how rigorously I took the cat apart, I could not discover the catness of the cat in any of the parts, yep. right? That the, 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 the catness is somewhere in the whole, the, my Brianness, right? Your, your uniqueness is somewhere in your whole that can't be found in any of your skills or your personality or your, uh, the pieces parts of your life. There's, there's a beingness and a, and a quality of wholeness that's there. Uh, and then, and then the, there's a bunch of them, but the third one that I would highlight uh, that I've already touched on back at the beginning is nestedness is that all life lives is nested in other life. And if, if the life that I'm nested in goes away, I go away. You know, my life goes away. If the, if life that's nested in my wholeness is, is that I support, if I go away, you know, that life uh, goes away. And I, I think that's a crucial question for us individually, for our organizations, for us as a species right now is to think about, what are the ecosystems of life in our local communities, right? What are the ecosystems of life in our cities? And I'm not talking just about nature, right? Cause I don't, uh, we're not, I, I don't think it makes sense to try to copy nature. We, we, we are, we have a role to play in nature, but I, but I think our cities are, are living organisms as well. And what's the role of our cities? I mean, what's the role that Los Angeles plays in North America? And then what's the role of Decurion within Los Angeles? What's the role of me within Decurion within Los Angeles? And, and when you start asking those questions, those, those are life-giving. I think those have the potential to be life-giving questions uh, rather than just developmental questions. Yeah. I think that's the tipping point between developing as an improving performance and developing as a way to start to flourish, which I would define as each of us starting to play our unique role in whatever ecosystem we're part of. I I love that. Well, and as, as you describe it, I mean, it does remind me of, of Keegan's stages of development. Right. And, and I've always been a believer, big believer when we talk about development, that, it isn't just the improved performance. Um, and I, and I'm just smiling as you're talking about, cause when we talk about, we talk about old paradigm and new paradigm, but it's basically the mechanistic universe versus the universe is a living yeah. system and organizations are living systems and individuals are living systems. And so, so I'm right there with you, like 100% get it. And it's, it's not, again, it's not nice and neat and easy. It's complex and it's messy, but, but I think, um, 
And I, yeah, and I don't know it's a destination you're trying to get to, then we're all on a journey to try to move something forward to a better future. And, you know, I, I know, I, I know you have a daughter who's, who's going to school in Minnesota where I am. And I mean, I think about my son who's much younger, he's 10, but it's like, I just think about when you've been part of those organizations that have those older paradigms running the show, they're also very dehumanizing and they're deflating and it can erode our own ability to, to, to flourish or to thrive. Yep. And I just think, man, I don't want my son to experience when I've been, the, you know, what I have experienced being the victim of these workplaces and, and that we have work to do as a society. Like you said, there's so many moving parts to, to have a better future. And I think this gets into the whole premise of this podcast is that, that, I really believe that every single one of us has an opportunity to show up as a leader and it's not about a title or a role or a job description. It's how we show up in the world and are we tending to that inner game and what are we doing in these ecosystems? And so I just think it's so, so important because people will sell sell themselves short and go, well, I don't have that title or I don't have that role or I don't have the access or I don't have the influence, not realizing that we all, like you talk about, there's that, there's that synergy, if you will, there's me, there's whatever organization I might work for or not, right? What communities I live in, what community groups I belong to, what city I live in. I mean, it just, it keeps kind of um, interconnecting, I guess, is the way that I, I look at it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, and and why this has become such a mission for me is is uh, one of the things I realized, and, and I used to think it was something that was going horribly wrong. Uh, but now I realize that I think it's just the way the universe works is that uh, new ideas end up being co-opted by the dominant paradigm. Mm. Right. So I, I saw this in the DDO movement, right. Is, is uh, I, if you took those three, four, five, four paradigms, but the bottom three paradigms that I just went through from Carol uh, and read the DDO book, I think you'd find an example of each of the three companies in each of the three paradigms below is the notion of human development can very easily be co-opted in order to extract value and to make more money without any regard to to life at the lowest level. And they still call it a DDO, right? Mm -hmm. That's horrifying to me. I would agree. Yeah. And, uh, or, uh, improved performance, which I think is the dominant paradigm right now, at least in the Western world, is that new ideas like conscious capitalism, like DDO, like human-centered organizations, like TEAL organizations, without conscious intervention, will be co-opted by the dominant paradigm, and will be um, and the outcomes and will will serve the outcomes of that paradigm, mm-hmm. and that's. I don't think that's what the world needs, right? So the, the, the way to prevent that is to become more aware, is to become more conscious, just like in the PSM, you know, which is where we started. Unless we are aware of the emotions that are driving us, uh, we don't have a chance to, to change that and to be, have more free will, have more say in how we want our lives to be used. Yeah. And I think it's the same with organizations, unless we're aware of these paradigms, unless we build the consciousness, the, the mind necessary to see those and to make conscious choices, then we're going to end up just kind of being used. You know, it just kind of just slips into the slipstream of how energy works in the existing paradigm. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, 
that's a worthy mission in, in my book to, yeah. to build that level of awareness. Oh, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm there with you and uh, we have work to do. <laughs> There's yeah, no work doubt, to do. There yeah, is no doubt do. about it. Right. I, I know <laughs> it'll be accomplished in my lifetime, but man, right. It's the, it's the keep, keep at it. Cause I think it's so, so important. And I just so appreciate that. So I, I always like to tra- kind of transition into a, a fun, quick segment, if you're up for it, of kind of rapid questions, just to kind of see where you're at. So the first few are a little more, more thoughtful, and then we get into kind of silly, just because why not, right? So the, the first for you, fill in the blank, living authentically is? It's uh, awareness. It's, it's uh, energy follows awareness, right? So uh, if I, the more complete answer there is, is uh, awareness, discernment, and action, but it all starts with awareness. Yep. Love it. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Well, what I would like to do is surrender. I'm not sure I do that very often, but uh, that's that's my path that I'm working on is to surrender to those moments. You know, I think there's value. Sometimes we just have to say it's, you know, (laughs) I don't have to, I don't have to be a leader all the time. Right. (laughs) When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? I just had a medical thing that I went through that uh, is taking a couple of months to recover from. And it, it was one of the hardest things I've done to say, no, I'm not available. For that, I need to take time to uh, to recover. So setting the boundaries for yourself—that's yeah. that's huge. I mean, kudos yeah. to you. There's not enough people who do that, so I'm sure it helped your healing. Hopefully, <laughs> a work in progress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something people would be surprised to know about you. Uh, I often present as the calmest person in the room. And my interior state is not that calm. My interior state is a noisy uh, place where I'm constantly bat- battling my own fears, my own demons, my own, what do I say now? You know, what, you know all of this. So the difference between inner and outer is uh, more extreme than I think people would guess. Interesting. Well, I, I love that. Not, I mean, but because I think that we're always saying there's so much more than what you see. There's so much more than what's yeah. merely apparent. So whether someone is excitable on the outside or calm on the outside, you have no idea what's going on, on the inside. Yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. So that's, that's, that, that surprising. So uh, the next one is a fun one that I sometimes use as an icebreaker, but it's been fun to hear our, my guest response. So I call it the four C's. So this is if reality money, nothing was, was, of consideration. What car would you want to have? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? And it does not have to be related to the country you're visiting. (laughs) (laughs) And then what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? Oof. Those are, those are tough questions. (laughs) What was the first one? Car? Car. Oh, my answers changed when I was a kid. I I desperately wanted a Ferrari. And, uh, (laughs) Now that I think if I could afford to have one now, I don't think I'd, I, I don't think I'd buy one anymore. I am, I've had a fantasy for a long time that, that I could take a couple of years off and start with some Jeep or, or uh, yeah, Jeep, start in uh, the South and work my way North through the deserts 
stopping where I wanted to stop, you know, staying as long as I could, taking pictures, uh, really, really being with the land, particularly the American Southwest. Nice. Jeep is a perfect way to road trip. So so something like that. Good. I love that. I love that. So the second C then is what country would you want to visit? Uh, Well, it's, uh, I've always, uh, I've I've been, I I end up spending time there now, but uh, I've always had a fascination with France. My wife is now French and, uh, and I get to spend some time now, but there's something about, uh, the French countryside and uh, the the way they live, the at least the old French, the way they used to live, very close to the land, and uh, and you know to the animals and to the agriculture. There's something intimate about that that has always really fascinated with me. Cool. I've only ever been to Paris, so I've never been to any any other spot. Which I know that's just a little teeny microcosm of the whole country. So, yeah. What cuisine would you want to eat? And then what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? <laughs> I really like Indian food as in India in Indian food. Yep. Me too. And uh, I get a little taste of that from time to time from, from authentic Indians, but I would I would love to uh, eat more of that. And I don't know about the celebrity. I've always been a little bit of an anti-celebrity. <clears throat> I'm uh I'm a bit of a devotee of uh, Ama. I don't know if uh, if anybody knows Ama, who's an Indian teacher. I'd, I'd probably want to eat a meal with her. Cool, love it. Yeah, I have a I have a neighbor who's Indian, and he makes the best food. And he'll sometimes, can I bring some leftovers over? We're like, um, yes, please. <laughs> so good. <laughs> okay, your favorite go to movie? Red Violin. Your go to song? Oh, depends on the mood, but maybe something by Queen. Love me some queen. <laughs> Your signature dance move. I that would be the slow dance for me. I am not a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sway, the sway. The back sway, yeah. The sway. Just, just, just pretend I'm dancing. Okay, love it. In another life, your job or career would be. Uh, I've had several people say that they thought I was a monk in a pri- in a previous life. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Uh, what's something you can't live without? Books. Yeah, I love it. You got lots of them like I do. I have a huge, huge bookcase and then more downstairs. Yep. Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. Uh, I've, I've become addicted to sunlight. I love sitting in the sun, which fortunately we have a lot of here in the Southwest. But. Yes. Vitamin D happiness. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? The way in in 2020 that I can be connected to you and a hundred other people around the world and and have meaningful conversations and that, that used to be you had to get on a plane to do this stuff before. Yeah, one of one of the silver linings, right, of this crazy time we're in. Yeah. Well. Brian, I, one, I just want to thank you. I mean, your calming presence just oh, made my afternoon, but I so love all the work you're doing. And I love the fact that not only do you challenge other people's thinking, you challenge my thinking. I just think that the journey you're on is so important. And the more that people, you know, can start to look at their, use some of these tools and if it, they start to look at paradigms or they start to look at 
you know, their own development or waking up or meditation or whatever it is. I just think you're bringing to light some super, super important things that, that aren't necessarily comfortable or easy, but are so needed. So I just appreciate you. I appreciate our time and thank you so much. Thank you for doing this, this work, hosting these conversations. I think that's important work, super important work. So great being here. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Rosie Ward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.